You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Peter Saunders. He's the co-director of the Institute of Science in Society in London. He's an emeritus professor of applied mathematics at King's College in London as well. We're going to be talking about uh, an introduction to catastrophe theory. So, Peter, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm well, and you? Good, good. Tell me about uh, catastrophe theory. Is this punctuated equilibrium, or is this, uh, in general, you know, uh, a coming catastrophe? Well, the thing about catastrophe theory is that it was invented by a Frenchman, and so if it has primarily the, the meaning that it has primarily in French, which is a sudden change. It, it's interesting. French and English have the same meanings, but the, uh, one a sudden change and be a disaster, but the French, it's a sudden change. And what it has to do with is something which has become a lot more of interest to mathematicians in the past while because we've learned how to deal with it. it. If you've got things that change gradually, then you solve them essentially by calculus and differential equations, which has been going on since the 18th century, you might say. But it's a bit trickier when things happen suddenly, and sudden changes are often the most interesting ones. And catastrophe theory is a theory which is to allow us to deal mathematically with things that change suddenly. Well, when you say mathematically, I'm thinking of like a step function, and maybe um, you know when something changes dramatically, all of a sudden you need new mathematics to describe the new regime because it's so different from the old. You can, but the problem is that a step functions have a tendency to be pretty ad hoc. You just say, well, um, there's a step here. Something happens. That isn't really what you want. Um, what it does is it actually says that if you have a system which is showing sudden jumps of one kind or another, then these jumps will occur in a pattern. It's a bit hard to explain this without a diagram. It'll be a lot easier in television. Um, but in the simplest case, there are five properties that tend to go together. Uh, one is sudden jumps. One is hysteresis, which means if you go in one direction, you get a jump at a certain point. If you go back, the jump doesn't occur there. It occurs somewhere else. It occurs further back normally. Um, you get divergence. That is to say, if you take two possible paths, we would say trajectories, which are actually apparently very close together, one of them will end up in a very different place from the other, or at least it can. Um, then there is inaccessibility. You find that there are some regions of some possibilities or apparent possibilities that just cannot occur, you just can't get there. And then there's bimodality. You find that you can essentially set up the system, and there are, for, in some cases, two possible outcomes 
in other, and uh, it, it could be either. And the point is that all five occur together. So if you see one of them, you start looking for the other four. And with any luck, you'll find them. So what, what kind of systems are you applying this knowledge to or observing it in? Well, it can be applied to all sorts of things. Um, if, if, if we had television, I would show you the little catastrophe machine, which is the easiest way to see it. Um, it, it was used for various, and still is used for various things in the social sciences. Um, I used it myself in dealing with the behavior of two microorganisms, which may sound a little bit juice, but it's what it was. And we were actually able to come to a conclusion. The question was, um, what do the, um, there was um, an, an amoeba which ate a bacteria, and the question was, um, what did the amoeba react to? Was it the number of bacteria that there were, or was it the number of bacteria per amoeba? Now, you'd think the second would be logical, because that's like human beings. We're not interested in how much food there is. We're interested in how much there is per person. Right. But with microorganisms, it doesn't go that way. Anyway, we were able to, to predict which it was that the amoeba were reacting to. And in fact, it, at almost exactly the time that our paper was published, a group at Princeton reported that they'd seen this strange behavior in the media and they couldn't figure out why they were doing it. And we had predicted they would. So what did you find out? How did they do this and what's the consequence of it? Well, the, the consequence is get rather complicated and going to take me beyond mathematics. The amoeba we were using is a thing called Dictyostelium, otherwise known as a slime mold, and it's the most amazing creature because most of the time it swims around like an ordinary amoeba do, little microorganisms, and they don't do very much, and they eat bacteria, and that's all there is. If they, get, if they starve, if they get hungry, then what they do is they form themselves into a little organism. Uh, we call it a slug, but it's an organism. And uh, then it sort of stands up and floats off spores so that it can um, reproduce somewhere else. And it's, from a biology point of view, it's fascinating because it's something that can't make up its mind, whether it's a single-celled creature or a multi-celled creature. So it was really quite interesting to be able to see what they were doing. The point of the sudden jumps, by the way, I mean, there was a reason why they do this, was that if you imagine all these individual cells, and if they're hungry, they've got to get together and form an organism. So now, if they're going to do that, it's a good idea if they all do it at the same time. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. And if you think about it, the way to do that, you've got to have a sudden jump in the thing so that below a certain level of food, they do it. Above a certain level, they don't. And the break is sudden, so they all decide at about the same time. So it actually mattered. Well, I've heard about um, one quick question. Have you have you heard about quorum sensing in bacteria, whereby um, they're counting the numbers of the same strain that is about them, and when there's quote unquote enough of them, you get a, a big change in behavior because they turn on, you know, let's say bioluminescence, or they, I don't know, start emitting some kind of uh, substance, or you know, they act in a certain way. Yeah, they, they can they can do that. I, I haven't tried to investigate that, so I don't really know if the thing um, works or not. The, the interesting thing about catastrophe theory, though, in a general sense, so as not to get us talking about biology, which isn't what the people wanted to hear, is what happened to it. Because the theory was developed by a remarkable French mathematician called René Thom. 
and who was an incredibly imaginative person. He was also a top-flight ordinary mathematician in the sense that he held the Fields Medal, which is like the Nobel Prize for mathematicians, probably even harder to win. And the it was something really quite new in applied mathematics, and it, it created a certain amount of fury. I didn't know anything about this, and I because it all happened in the United States, and I'm in London. And I came across to America to attend a meeting of the AAAS and give a short talk. And there was a seminar at the end on new mathematics for biology. And so I listened to this, and nobody mentioned capacity theory. So I got up and I said, well, um, <laughs> you're talking about new mathematics for biology. There is one very important piece of new mathematics, a really big development, and no one's mentioned it. And that's catastrophe theory. And you should have seen the reaction in the room when that happened. Because um, I, I, I had no idea what I'd said, or at least the import of what I'd said. And, every, and everybody was, oh, my goodness, how could you say so? Oh, what is he talking? Oh, my gosh. And so on and so forth. What I didn't know was that a couple of mathematicians, I think from Rutgers University, had spent the year going around the United States and saying that catastrophe theory was just nonsense. They were wrong, but that's what they were saying. And so what they managed to do... What does the theory say? Does it say that those five elements you're talking about will, will be present together in a system that undergoes rapid change to a new regime? Or you know, what does it say? Norm, the, the problem is what it says is that that's what you expect to see. And this, this is really where the problem comes in. Because in mathematics, what we're used to is the idea that I write, I have a system, I think I know what's making it go. I like the planets going around the sun or an aircraft flying or anything like that. And you write down the equations which you believe govern the system. And if you've got it right, what will happen is that when you turn the crank and solve the equations, you will get predictions of what will happen and you will get numerical predictions. You will predict how fast the plane will fly, you will predict where the planets will go and how long it will take them to get around the sun and things like that. That's for simple systems, comparatively simple. When you get into complicated systems, and biology's got lots of them, you can't do this. You can't write down the equations for a human being or even an amoeba or something like that. It just can't be done. So now what you have to look at is what you expect to see happen and what, you, what will normally happen, what will typically happen. This is unsettling for applied mathematicians because it's not what we're used to doing, and it's hard to get it right. And so it wasn't entirely surprising, or it shouldn't have been, that there would be fuss about this. But it caused a lot of problem, and this, this continues, because when you talk about complex systems, you have to remember that complex systems are not like simple systems. Does that sound silly? Well, perhaps. But what, it mean, what I mean is you have to approach them using different techniques, and you have to expect that you're not going to get the same sorts of answers that you would get for a simple system. Are you saying that mathematicians <clears throat> don't like being forced to model things with math? They would rather just determine it from first principles? Or is there something else at work here? No, they want to model it, but they want to model it in the way that they are used to modeling it, which may, or, which may be what you meant when you said when you were talking about first principles. One thing, one way of putting it, which somebody said a long time ago, is that what we're used to doing is making a model of a whole system. 
where the system is too complicated to do that, we may we may have to make do with using mathematics as best we can to learn some things about the system, but not the whole lot. And that's tricky. It's tricky to get it right because it's very easy just to do nonsense and say, well, I sort of think this might happen. And also, it's sometimes difficult to convince people that actually you've accomplished something. That's why we were so pleased that we were able to use the system that everybody thought wouldn't work and end up with a real prediction, which we could do. Well, again, what's, when, you, when you say they, they have to model things in a way they're not used to, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're dealing with open systems and they're like closed ones or the methodology is different? No, it's, a, it's, a case of, it, it's a case of having a system that is simply too complicated to model in detail. You just can't do it. And so now you have to look at what else, how you can use mathematics to learn something about the system. And that's tricky because it's not easy to learn something about a system. We're used to being able to have a complete thing. I mean, to pick one example, um, take an aircraft that's, that's uh, flying above the speed of sound. Now, you can use ordinary fluid dynamics and you can work out that you'll get a shock wave and all the rest of it. And, and what you do is you end up with a model that tells you how every molecule of air in the vicinity of that aircraft is moving. And that's really quite an accomplishment, and aerodynamics is quite a subject. On the other hand, you can use catastrophe theory, and what will it tell you? Well, what it will tell you is that it's possible to have a, a uh, shock wave. It can't tell you precisely the conditions under which it will happen. And it will also tell you what the shape of it's going to be. It's going to be cusp-shaped. Mm, so okay. that's not as much information as you can get, but if that's all you can get, you should be you should be proud of having got that there. So, uh, in general, is it just the systems that are trying to be modeled this way are so complicated that you just have to be happy with getting information on part of the system, and that's the frustration? Or uh, do these no, the frustration is that well, well, perhaps that's one way of putting it, but really the problem is that it just is not something mathematicians like doing. We want to have quantitative results. Um, for One of the great, I think it was Lord Kelvin, but it may have been Rutherford, but anyway, one of the great mathematical physicists in the British Isles a century ago uh, was very scathing about qualitative results. And he said that, and it's very famous, qualitative is just poor quantitative. We're beginning to learn that at least for complex systems, it's the other way around, that quantitative is just poor qualitative. Hmm. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, suppose I want to understand how a certain reaction will occur in an ecosystem. I want to know whether the things will be stable, whether the, whether the population will fluctuate, whether things will go extinct. Now, the classical way of doing this is to write down differential equations, which I think are something like what happens. But they're only something like. So, for instance, if I think, well, if I don't have very many of a certain species, it'll grow, it'll increase very quickly, and then it'll slow down, and then it'll sort of level out. And that sounds plausible to me. Now, what I can do is I can write down a particular equation, it's called the logistic equation, which has exactly that behavior. It starts fast and then levels out. And then I can solve that equation, and I can predict what's going to happen. The only trouble is that 
my equation is not actually precisely or maybe not even closely what's really going on. It doesn't follow that equation. So what I really want to do is to go back to the beginning and say, well, it increases fast in the beginning and then it slows down and then it levels out. And what I want is a theory which will enable me to take that statement and do something with it. And that's a qualitative statement. So that when I turned the uh, slogan round, what I was saying was, well, one way of solving a qualitative problem is to write down an equation that I don't believe, thus turning it into a quantitative problem, and then um, hoping that the answer gives me, that the qualitative behavior of the answer tells me something. It would be better, if I know how to do it, to deal with the qualitative thing all by itself. Because then I'm only dealing with what I think is going on, rather than inserting into it an equation that I don't really believe. But isn't isn't this always the uh, the back and forth between theoretical versus applied mathematics, and the people that work in those two areas? Well, there is that uh, play altogether. I, I don't think, actually, the distinction between the two is as great as it used to be. I think the barriers between pure and applied mathematics aren't as great. But really, this is a problem for applied mathematicians, because we have to, it's not just that we have to learn new mathematics to use what to, and to apply. What our problem is, we've got to learn new ways of applying mathematics. This is not easy. It's just not what we're used to. It's not what we were trained to do. So, I mean, what about uh, AI? And you know, the, that's that's all a, an approximation. You know, people say, oh, it's a it's a black box. They don't know what the neural network's doing in the inner layers, and you know, that whole area seems to require you not to have the knowledge that you're seeking as a mathematician. Yes, but I don't think it's parallel to what I'm doing. I mean, what it's true. What they're doing is, as you said. Um, a system where they don't—they themselves don't actually understand what's going on. In a way, the qualitative stuff is ex is the exact reverse of that. What I'm trying to do is to take what I do know, or at least believe to be true, and working with that and as little else as I can get away with, instead of using the classical thing, which requires me to write down equations that I don't believe. Huh. So you mentioned a catastrophe machine. I mean, what? What is that? Can you describe it? What is it? Well, I can I can tell you what it is. It's not something to blow up the world or anything like that. Eh. It's a little toy that you can make out of oh pieces of cardboard and some thumbtacks uh, and, and a couple of rubber bands. And what it does is it actually demonstrates sudden jumps, hysteresis, divergence, inaccessibility, and bimodality. And you can see it. That's why it's a pity we're not on the television. Hmm. So all right. So it's. It, a machine meaning it's a computer that can display, or you can, I don't know, it displays systems no, that have these five characteristics. It's a, little, it's a little toy. It looks like a child's toy. Oh, so it's behaviors. So how does it show you these five things? Do its behavior, or like, what does it do? It's what you do is there are two rubber bands, and you hold one of them, and you move that rubber band around. And when you do, you discover that at certain points, if you move the rubber band across something, the machine suddenly jumps. Oh. And then when you move the rubber band back, the machine jumps again, but it doesn't jump at the same place it jumped before, which is mm. hysteresis. Mm. And, and, and it's really quite fun. Okay. If you look in my book or another's, you can actually build one for yourself. It'll take you about 10 minutes if you have some rubber bands. Right. Um, so what, do you, what, what are you applying this, this new way of working with systems or understanding them towards? Or what are 
people in general are trying to apply this towards solving well, climate change? I mean, I don't know. Yes, you can apply it in climate change because in climate change, what you're interested in knowing is are there going to be sudden jumps? And to some extent, what I don't need, what I can't know, for example, is at the moment the, the uh, climate is clearly changing, the earth is getting warmer. Now, the question is what's going to happen? Well, if we keep on pushing greenhouse gases up, we're going to get the atmosphere getting warmer and a little bit warmer and a little bit warmer. Question, is that all that's going to happen? Or are we going to reach a point where the thing suddenly just completely collapses, the temperature shoots up all of a sudden? Mm, right. And if you apply qualitative things, not specifically catastrophe in this case, but if you apply qualitative things, you can see that this is a possibility. Notice I didn't say that this is going to happen. Right. You can see it's a possibility. And that's sort of typical of what this sort of mathematics does. It tells you that you should, you can expect that this will happen. Well, when you say, uh, when you say expect, I mean, with what level of confidence and what, does it show you a probability? No, it doesn't. Hmm. But it does, it does tell you things that you should warn about, you should be warned about. For example, um, one of the things that I think the president is fond of saying is when it, get, it, when it got very cold in the States earlier this year, I think Trump tweeted that, well, it gets cold. What's all this about the earth warming up? Right. Yeah. What the mathematics warns you, however, is that if something is, if the, an equilibrium is about to break down, that is to say, if the earth, which has been fairly stable, is a little bit warmer than it used to be, if we're getting to the point where things really might go wrong. One of the warnings that that will happen is that the fluctuation should be greater, that you would expect greater swings. Mm. Um, you can sort of see this. So this standard thing of to visualize stability is a marble at the bottom of a cup. If you shake the cup, the, model, the marble comes back to the bottom. Now imagine that somebody is flat, that the cup, cup is made of rubber and somebody is flattening it out because they're going to turn it upside, they're going to end up with turning it inside out. So now the marble is sitting at the top of the cup, in which case it'll fall off and roll away. That's unstable. Right. As they're doing that, the cup becomes flatter. And that means that the ball takes longer to get back to equilibrium. So you do expect that there is a warning. It's not just that the thing might happen. You know what to look for as a warning. The warning being, if you're getting greater fluctuations, then you should be worried. And that means that if, in fact, you get a winter that was colder than you're used to, ironically, that's not necessarily reassuring. Mm. That actually could be a sign that we're headed towards a... Uh, uh, I keep thinking step change, but I can't help it. But, yeah, a change in regime. The thing is becoming less stable, and that's worrying. Mm. Because it's when it becomes really unstable that you've got that all hell breaks loose and you've got no way of knowing what's going to happen. Huh. Except that it would become, if that happens, it'll become very hot very quickly. The thing is, catastrophe theory and things like that um, don't tell us for sure what's going to happen. They only warn us. If you want to know if a catastrophe is going to occur, there is only one way to be sure, and that's to sit back and let it happen. Mm. At which point it's too late. But if catastrophe theory warns you that things could happen, and there's no probability assigned to them, and there's no sense of how likely it is to happen, 
you don't get a you don't get a number attached. What it gives you right. is a is an indication of what can happen, and it tells you the signs to look out for, that to say that this is really what's going to happen. And is this uh, aligned with chaos theory and attractors and things like that? Is this the same thing under a different name? Is it completely different? No, no, it's, it's really quite different. Chaos theory has to do with uh, quite different things. And they're both related in the sense that what you normally get out of them is only qualitative. I mean, with chaos, by its very nature, um, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen. But when you recognize a certain chaotic system, a certain set of equations or all the rest of it, what you, I mean, I don't know if you remember the diagram everybody used to draw for chaos theory, this thing that looks something like a butterfly. It's got two loops, and you've got something that goes round one loop and round the other. What, what you can prove is that a, a, a particle following this path will spend almost half its time on the one loop, almost half its time on the other loop, and a little bit of time in between going from one loop to the other. Okay. But what you can't do is to say two weeks from next Thursday, which loop is it going to be on? Right. You don't know. There's no way of knowing. So again, you've got information, but you don't have the complete information that we ma applied mathematicians are used to being able to tell you. So how do you assign some some kind of likelihood of you know this the well, in the case of chaos, I often can, because I know, I know that if I have the system running and I look to see where it's got to, um, there's almost an even chance it'll be on the left-hand loop, and almost an even chance it'll be on the right-hand loop, and then a rather smaller chance that it'll be in the middle. So in that case, I can do it, but that's because it's a pretty um, artificial thing. It is, you know, it's a very simple set of equations. If I have a really chaotic system, I may not be able to do that. Um, for example, the, for a long time people wondered about whether the solar system allowed chaos. Like the whole, the whole branch of mathematics, in a sense, that from the French mathematician Poincaré was because of, they wanted to know if the solar system was stable. They now think that it's actually there are parts of the solar system where you do actually get chaos. In fact, that's why there are gaps in the asteroid belt. Because if a, part, if a little piece of rubbish was in the asteroid belt, it would normally go around the sun, same as the Earth does. But sooner or later, it would get dragged out of that and go somewhere else. That's why there are no asteroids in that belt. Well, mm. fine. We can be pretty sure that if there were a particle there, that's what would happen to it. When it would happen, we don't know. Where it would go, we don't necessarily know. But sooner or later, it's going to happen. So if there is a particle there, don't don't bet too much on it remaining there for the next few million years, because it won't. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's only so many things that uh, people can pay attention to, so I would think there's got to be some Pareto or some way to, to figure out the likelihood of one thing versus another, at least relatively. Maybe you look at the five factors you talk about and systems that show one of them or a certain way and systems or effects that show all five of them. Are well, you see, the thing is, you're, you're still looking for something quantitative. I sympathize because I wish I could do it. <laughs> but there are cases where you can't do that. You know, you got to be grateful that I can accomplish as much as I can. I mean, me and other applied mathematicians, of course. But 
that's that's the best we can do. Um, but after all, if you think about something like global warming, um, the warnings that it could get a lot worse fast mm. could. I don't know when, but it could. And what's more, I can give you the clues. Like if you get bigger fluctuations, you want to get worried. Yeah. I think that's useful to know that we can't assume that it'll just go slowly. Might might not. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So what other kinds of systems have you uh, applied this to and gotten surprising insights? Well, what I've been doing is less with catastrophe theory than more and more with uh, the qualitative behavior of systems. Catastrophe theory is one way of looking at it, and I've used it in various things, but it's not always easy to explain. But you see, one of the other things I was interested in and have been for a long time is evolution theory. And I don't, do you know about punctuated equilibria, the thing that Eldridge and Gould developed about 30 years ago. A, a little bit, but uh, if you don't mind restating it, then we can go from there. The question, the question is, how do the major changes in evolution take place? E right. Evolutionists right. have a term. They talk about macroevolution. Macroevolution is what the rest of us call evolution. Um, you mean like speciation, creation of a new species, it, or even beyond that? It, it's, yes, this, of really new species, not just you know, not just minor changes. I mean, they don't do it so much, but for a long time, one of the things that evolutionists were very interested in was the color of the peppered moth in the Midlands in England. And the question was, how come they used to be white, then for a long time they were black, and then they were white again? And the answer is it has to do with pollution because the area known as the black country because of all the soot in the air. Hmm. And there was natural selection for the dark ones, and then there was natural selection again for the white ones after the Clean Air Act, and so on. So it's all very good, and it probably, there are arguments about it, but it could be true. However, that's the sort of thing that interests evolutionists. What the rest of us are interested in is, how did they get to be moths in the first place? How come there's moths? Never mind the color, and we can sort that out afterward. So how do you get these big changes occurring? And the question is, do big changes occur fairly abruptly, or do big changes occur gradually? Mm. And the argument has always been they occur gradually because everything in evolution has to occur gradually. Um, if you read the origin of species, you'll discover that Darwin didn't think evolution was gradual because of the evidence. In fact, he says that the evidence, if anything, is against it. He believed it because of the battles about uniformitarianism that the geologists had been having at the time. So it's, it's a tenet of evolution theory. And I say a tenet because I mean it's a belief. It's not backed up by the evidence that it has to be gradual. So they put together stories of how you could get major changes occurring by something gradual but quick, which is, I don't know if it's plausible, it's certainly possible. Okay. If, however, you look at an organism, you say, well, organisms are you can say a lot of things about organisms, but one of the things is that they are very complicated, nonlinear, dynamical systems. Just a lot of things hooked together, and with the connections between them being very complicated. Right. Fairly clear. What else are they? Right. Well, if you think of the way systems like that behave, you discover that on the whole, they're fairly, they're, they're very stable. So. Why are they stable? Well, because if they weren't stable, they wouldn't, we wouldn't see them. So that the, the ones that we see and call systems are stable. And if they are stable, if these are, 
then what tends to happen is not that they will change by being pushed gradually this way and again this way and again this way and until you get something else. They tend to change fairly quickly. And so that would explain how punctuated equilibria can occur, that these systems do change quickly. And then you say, well, hang on, that's very nice mathematically, but does it actually happen in real life? And the answer is we do actually get changes which are not only big, but which also leave you with a viable organism. And the example that everybody will know is what happened to the babies of women who took thalidomide at an unfortunate point in gestation when they were pregnant. Mm. Now, if you think of what happened to the babies that were born, they were born really quite deformed, especially their limbs. But on the other hand, they were still viable. So you've got an infant which has got a, a really major change. They look very, very different from the rest of us. At least their arms are. Right. But they're still viable. They were still able to live. They've grown up. They've had normal lives. A bit uncomfortable, but no worse than that. So we know that large coordinated change, changes are actually possible. And I've heard it objected to that, well, yes, but that's had to do with a drug. It isn't natural. Actually, there is a um, mutation which leads to a condition called pseudothalidomide, mm. where you get almost exactly the same um, distortions. Right. But it happens because of the mutation. So it, it could occur naturally as well. This came up during the uh, lawsuits about thalidomide. It was pointed out that this could happen. And Distillers Corporation, who did not behave particularly well in all of this, at least said, all right, we're not going to start looking to see which of these might be uh, natural. But it, does, it can exist. So we know that this is what systems do. That's what the mathematics contributes. We know that there are examples of sudden changes in nature. So it isn't necessary to insist that all the change had to be gradual by, well, they call it allopatric speciation. Allopatric just means it occurred in a different place. Okay. Um, so, you, you know, so again, you have this problem, the same as you had in catastrophe theory, that what you're trying to do is to say, look, this is the way systems behave. Real complicated nonlinear systems behave in ways that strike us as odd, but actually it's normal in a way that our intuition is wrong. And yet we've known about sudden changes for a long time. Um, we've known, I mean, uh, mathematicians know that uh, the collapse of a bridge was studied by Euler in the 18th century. And for those who aren't mathematicians, there's the famous proverb about the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. And so, so, so we know that so in evolution, this tells you that, okay, a sudden speciation can occur and punctuated equilibrium makes sense. Is that what it's telling you? That's, that's what it's telling me. And it's telling me that it might be, I myself doubt it, it could be that the conventional evolutionists are right and all these things happened in the way that they said. But it is by no means certain, and I would guess myself, that it's a little unlikely. Right. And basically what they say is that the evolution occurred because little groups got cut off from the main group. Evolution is fast. Natural selection operates faster in small groups. That's certainly true. And so they evolved into something better. And then they came back and outcompeted the old ones. And we don't 
find the fossils, because there are gaps in the fossil record, everybody knows that. We don't find the fossils for two reasons. First of all, because the group that did all the evolving was small, and secondly, they weren't in the same place as the main population they were studying, which amounts to saying that all the evolution that really matters took place just when no one was looking. Possible, but no, I don't find it convincing. Right. You know, when you first started talking about catastrophe theory, that's what I thought you meant is, uh, you know, a meteor hitting the Earth and that, that was a catastrophe. No, no. Or a flood or those kind of things. People tend to think that. I once got rung up by, I think it was some conference on oil or something like that. This was years ago. And they said they knew I worked in catastrophe theory and would I want to give a talk. And so I tried to explain to them what was going on and that I didn't really think this was going to work because they thought of catastrophe in the sense that you were saying it. Mm. And finally, I said, look, I said, I've written a book. Go out and buy one and look at it. And if, if having done that, you still think you want me to come and talk, I will. And they never came back to me. So I guess it yeah. wasn't what they wanted. Uh, well, could you say in a, in a mathematical system that follows catastrophe theory that when a sudden change occurs, it's as if a catastrophe happened such as, let's say, a meteor, and completely change the system and the way it operates? No. The, the, in general, what you expect as a result of catastrophe theory is that the potential for sudden jumps was always there. It's just that it, you had to push the system in the right or maybe the wrong way in order to get that to happen. It's almost like Marx claiming that, you know, every, capitalism contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. The thing about systems is that most of the time they behave themselves, like, say, the climate of the Earth. Mm. And because of that, we get rather complacent. And we think that, well, unless something terrible happens, like an asteroid hitting the Earth or something, it'll just keep on going like that. And the answer is no, because the fact that the system has never, well, hasn't recently exhibited a sudden jump doesn't guarantee that it doesn't have the potential for it. Actually, the Earth's climate has changed fairly rapidly in the past, so I dare say it could happen again anyway. Mm. So where, is, where, where are you taking this, you know, in your observations and your work with, you know, catastrophe theory? Are you attempting to refine it so you can get probabilities on the outcomes, you know, when you see this happen? Or, you know, where's the, the no, next uh, step uh, to be uh, taken? Well, it's hard to say what the next step is. For me, catastrophe theory is a, tool, is a tool that I use when I'm studying systems. However, I will give you an example. Um, to some extent, the work I did, but there was another example that somebody did. He was studying hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, uh, too much thyroid and too little. Right. And he couldn't make any sense of what was going on because it had this bimodality that I mentioned. In other words, for what appeared to be the same values of the relevant parameters, some patients had too much, some patients had too little. And this led him to believe there was a catastrophe there. Didn't prove it, but he thought it probably was a good indication. So what he did was he did what you usually do in catastrophe theory, which is you draw your little cusp and you try to figure out Again, you see, we could do with the telly. And you try to figure out how the thing is behaving. And what he discovered was that one of the things in catastrophe theory is that where you have sudden jumps, sometimes it's possible by fiddling the parameters properly 
to get from one place to another without that jump, to sort of go around the back. Mm. And he discovered that th he predicted that this should be possible and that you should be able to take a patient. Now, I'm going to get this the wrong way around, so if there's any, oh, I'm sure 50 50 chance, so if there's a doctor listening, I'm sorry, he'll have better check the paper. But what he found was that if you wanted to get the patient from hyperthyroidism to normal, uh, euthyroidism, that is to say the normal state, you could do that directly. But if you had somebody with hypothyroidism, what you had to, that's too little, what you had to do was to push them to hyperthyroidism first, and then you could get them to the normal state, but you couldn't get directly from the hypo state to the normal state. Oh. And he got that because he said, ah, I, can, I guess there's a catastrophe theory, a catastrophe here, and I know what the catastrophe looks like mathematically is sort of a geometric object. And so I can see on the diagram where you would have to go. Then, having done that, the question was, well, yes, but what are the equations involved? Because that would tell me, I mean, it's, nice, it's good that he got that far, but now what do you do? And what you now do is you say, ah, but wait a minute. Given that I know the catastrophe, I've got a clue as to what the equations are. I don't know it, but I've got a clue. Uh, in particular, if there's some variable x, I know the powers of x. Do I need x, x squared, x cubed, whatever? And now that he knew what he was looking for, he was able actually to come up with a, with a good uh, conventional mathematical model. So catastrophe theory gave him the start. He was no longer in the dark, and he was now able to do the, the conventional modeling on the back of that. And again, the methodology on how to, you know, you, you can't just slowly approach euthyroidism, as you said, normal function. You have to overshoot because the system then will bring it back to the right level. The system will allow you to bring it back. You still have to push it, oh. but you, you, you have to push it to hyper first. As I say, I may have this the wrong way around. Doctors will want to check. Sure. You have to push it up, and then from there, you can push it to normal. It won't do it by itself, but you can push it. Mm, gotcha. But you wouldn't have that insight unless you had studied this stuff. So. Okay. It would be very, un uh, uh, I, I mean, anything's possible, but I would have thought if you hadn't drawn the diagram, it would have been very difficult to get at it in, in the same way that our prediction about what those microorganisms are doing. I'm sure if you were clever enough, you could have done it without the diagram, but I'm sure I couldn't have done it. Okay. Well, well very good. Um, what do you see as the future of this work, you know, near term and long term? Any sudden change, changes you, you see coming, just to, you know, unintended? Uh, yes. I think what's going to happen is two things. One of them is, and it, um, there's already a lot happening in pure mathematics, which is relevant because people are, qualitative mathematics, basically topology, is nowhere near as new as uh, old as geometry. Geometry has been with us since Euclid, so that's you know, two millennia. Um, topology is newer, and it's harder to work in, um, but I think we're Mathematicians are getting more used to that. And I think what will happen applied mathematics is that gradually people will start becoming more accustomed to how you, how you do this sort of thing and, and, and what the rules of the game are and how you know when you've actually accomplished something. I've noticed, for example, that in most of the rest of the world, 
will occasionally refer to catastrophe theory as such. American applied mathematicians have a tendency to refer to it as, what is it, Tom's generalized bifurcation theory. That allows them to use it without actually admitting what they're doing. Huh. All right. I and mean, any any near-term advances you see coming? No, it's very hard to uh, predict what's going to happen. And since I, I've become more interested in uh, the dynamical systems, I mean, as I say, I did act. I have actually used um, catastrophe theory to explain um, what we call genetic assimilation, um, which is a a way in which what looks like the inheritance of acquired characters can actually take place. Oh, can you say um, a few words about that? To, well, the question is, um, if you want to have a, when you have a major change, you assume it's going to happen, at least I would assume it's going to happen by some sort of jump. And what will happen will be that you can imagine that there is some, there's a gene which produces a gene product and the gene product um, influences reaction. Now, if the amount of the gene product is small, nothing much happens. If the amount is above a certain threshold, then it will happen. But it's sometimes one of the problems that there's been in evolution the whole time is what happens with the first stages of a evolutionary change. The classic one, which was uh, addressed by Darwin, um, Another biologist at the time said, well, look, if you're going to assume that all change is gradual, have a look at the flounder or the place of the sole, one of those fishes, flat fishes anyway. Okay. The interesting thing about a flounder is that both its eyes are on one side of the head. Yeah, they're weird looking, yeah. Yeah, and they do that because they swim along the bottom of the sea and there's not a great deal of point in having one eye facing down. There's nothing to see. Right. Yeah. Both eyes are at the top. And the question is, how did that happen? Mm. Um, and so this fellow, um, St. George Mithart, his name was, uh, wrote that he just didn't see that this was possible. And Darwin, being a very conscientious man, when he did the sixth edition of The Origin of Species, he said, all right, let's tackle this one. And he said, well, he thought that it happened. Uh, it, it, the, the point is you can see the advantage of having the two eyes on the top, but what you can't see so easily is if it has to happen gradually, what was the advantage in having the, the bottom eye moving very slightly forward? doesn't do any good. And Darwin said, well, almost certainly, you know, not, let me be fair, he didn't say almost certainly, he said the way that he thought that the way it could happen would be that the fish would be swimming along and it would be straining, trying to get the bottom eye round to the top. And if it did this for enough generations, sooner or later, the eye would actually find its way there. Well, of course, this is the sort of thing that we're not supposed to believe if we believe in natural selection. This is what we call the Marxism, inheritance of acquired characters that if I strain to get my eye round, then my children will have their eye a little bit further along to start and all the rest of it. Right. What you get, the idea of genetic assimilation is that you say, well, let's, go, let's think in terms of gene products. And let us suppose that to make a change, like moving the eye round, it takes quite an increase in the gene product. And you can't imagine that that could happen by a single mutation. So you're not going to get a sudden change. This just isn't going to happen. Not, not like that anyway. So how could it happen? Well, one way it could happen is this. One of the peculiar things about 
development and about change is that sometimes there are certain changes. I mentioned thalidomide, actually that's one, where you can get almost exactly the same change in one of two ways, either by a mutation or by a, by a disturbance, perturbation of some kind. In the case of thalidomide, there is a mutation, but you can do the same thing by giving the mother thalidomide while she's pregnant. Um, an even better example of this, which is rather fun, is butterfly collectors are very like to have every variety there is of a species, and they put them in their collections. And sometimes they find these uh, mutations very difficult to find. You don't see all of them. What they've discovered is if you take the pupae and if you put them into the refrigerator for a while, then you can produce these, some of these other varieties and add them to your collection. Every butterfly collector I've talked to knows about this, and they consider it cheating because you're not, you're not meant to do that. But it can happen, and that's the important thing, that a environmental perturbation and a mutation can sometimes have the same effect. So now you say with genetic assimilation, well, if you had a change which got you part of the change in gene product that you needed, that would make it more likely that a perturbation would kick it over the threshold. Mm. So there would actually be selection for that mutation. And therefore, you could, in the end, get, at, at first, you'd only see this um, product, whatever it was, say the, the uh, different kind of butterfly, you'd only see this as the result of a perturbation. So you would assume that it was an acquired character. But after a while, it would start appearing without the perturbation because a second mutation could occur. Right. right. So this is one of the things that I think conventional evolutionists don't like very much. Oh, I know. They, they just like random mutation and purposelessness. And, yeah, I know. Yes, that's exactly right. So, so for the flounder's eye, that's a really interesting question. So do you think that it's a combination of Lamarckism where the flounder, you know, was just swimming along the bottom, and so uh, the other eye wasn't being used, which caused some kind of maybe yeah, that, that down, down regulation. Actually, yeah, actually, the, the story is a very nice one, and it's very good for illustration. I, to be honest, I'm not sure Darwin had it right or, or the, his uh, opponent, because I believe that with flat fish, when they're very young, um, they actually have the two eyes where you'd expect them to be, and the eye moves round during development. Really? So it's rather more complicated than I've said, but I, I felt entitled to do that because since that was a story as Darwin told it, I could use it as, as an example. Hmm. I guess we can look at uh, Darwin's flounder to look into it more. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's probably got an awful lot of things right in it, an awful lot of... Uh, you know, evidence, which is the, the big thing about Darwin. I mean, that, so, you know, we, we, can, we can allow him that. But there is a moral there that sometimes um, we simplify stories because it makes our explanation work better. And there are times where what you've really got to do is to look at the thing in all its complexity and say, you know what, this oversimplified explanation is a bit of a cheat, really. We're going to have to go back to it and see what can we do it better? No, that's true. Okay. Very good. So many questions. Um, you mentioned in the beginning, you know, you wish we had visuals. So what kind of resources can we give to listeners so they can see some of the things you're talking about and experience them? You know, any links or 
or things to Google? Um, I haven't thought of that, but I'll see what I can find because it's. I mean, first of all, there are. It, it would be a lot easier for people if they could see a diagram of a catastrophe and a few some very simple things about it. I'll have to look and see. I mean, I don't even know what Wikipedia have on catastrophe theory. Hmm. Well, what about I'm people that want to uh, contact you and you know invite you to talk so you may? Or, do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. how do they contact you so they can invite you to speak? You know, at places that may or may not be suitable for you to speak at. Well, the best thing is is if people have my um, email address, which I think people do, because I think it's on the reminder that you sent out, didn't wasn't it? Yeah, we'll include it in the show notes. I just didn't know if you had any specifics here. No, that's that's the the best way for people to get a hold of me um, is by email. I mean, first of all, it's less it's less intrusive than phone. Secondly, with the time difference between here and America, I, I sometimes find that people forget that there's a five to eight hour difference depending upon where you are. Right. And I get very short tempered if people wake me up in the middle of the night. Uh, that has happened usually. Right. Uh, but if if people contact me that way, okay. Um, then I'll see what can be done. And what I would also try to find is instructions for making a catastrophe machine because it's kind of fun and it, it, it's very simple yeah. to make and it does the most. It, it does really nice things. The other thing they can do is buy my book, which is still in print. Okay, and say the name again. It's just called An Introduction to Catastrophe Theory. Okay. And it's published by Cambridge University Press. Very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, you know, thanks for for all your insight. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.